want to tell you uh, about the story of a church named Rhythm that I planted with a group of friends in Miami, Florida back in 2010 and co-pastored for nearly six years. And this is going to sort of be, I know, Pam, yesterday you quoted Daryl from our conversation, our group conversation a month or so ago. I'm going to quote you now. This is going to be a missional memoir with theological footnotes. Yes. You're saying nice. You didn't know that you said that. Yes. <laughs> so that's how, as I was working on this, that's how I framed it. A missional memoir with theological footnotes. But before I jump into the story, I just want to lay my ecclesiological cards on the table. The main metaphor that I used at Rhythm for describing the church was that of a pirate island. So here's what I mean by that, is you've got this mainland over here, and it's got its, uh, its customs, its traditions, uh, its rules, its way of life. But then you got this crazy little pirate island here. And it's got its own customs and traditions and way of life. And the moment you step foot on that pirate island, you encounter a different way of being. I would contend that the call of the church is to be a pirate island right in the middle of society. And the goal is not to stay on the pirate island to just gather up the wagons and be about ourselves. The goal is to take the pirate ways out and to spread the holy mischief. And by using this metaphor by you know, describing the church as pirate island, I'm not trying to be novel. I'm not trying to be uh, provocative. Well, maybe a little provocative. What I'm actually trying to do is just continue the New Testament tradition of describing the church as a contrast community. Here are some of the New Testament images and metaphors for the church. Resident aliens, that's 1 Peter 2. A pilgrim people, that's Hebrews 11. A colony of heaven, that's Philippians 3. Little flock, that's Luke 12. A peculiar people, that's 1 Peter 2. A city on a hill, Matthew 5. The new humanity, Ephesians 2. A light to the nations, that's Acts 13, which is actually a rephrasing of Isaiah 49. What all of these metaphors are getting at is that the church is a contrast society. It lives distinctly different. It's set apart. The, the word that is used in the New Testament for church, ecclesia, literally means called out one. So I church planted rhythm because I believe we need more outposts for the kingdom of God. We need more pirate islands planted right in the midst of society. Yes. So with that preamble, here's our story. I think probably the best place to start would be uh, 2005. I moved to Miami to become a youth pastor at a large, uh, a large Baptist church. And I had a wonderful experience there, mainly because of the people that I was working with. 
And the, the youth group that I was leading was, uh, was really growing, ministry was growing, and, and so was the, the, uh, the number of 20-somethings that were helping with the youth group and discipling young people. Nineteen of us ended up moving into an inner-city neighborhood and starting an intentional community. Uh, we made all sorts of mistakes. It was beautiful. Learned all sorts of things. Were part of some wonderful things. And so this intentional community mixed with how the youth ministry was growing sort of created a church within a church at this larger church. But the larger church uh, supported what we were doing. And we worked really hard to honor one another in that. So after two years at this church, I began sensing that God wanted to uh, take me into the desert for a time of preparation and to pour into me. So similar to how Paul, after his conversion, went off into Arabia, into the desert for three years. No one really knows what he was up to. I think he was just getting his head straight. I think God was reforming him was teaching him, was preparing him. And so I began looking uh, at different seminaries, and Princeton became my desert in the best sense. I mean that in the best sense. Not in terms, not in terms of barrenness, but in terms of spaciousness for serious theological inquiry and reflection. And the... Uh, the week before I left for seminary, this Baptist church ordained me. Now, some of you are like, huh, exactly. That sounds a little backwards. I mean, to some people it does. Some who feel that ordination should follow seminary, not precede it. But for this church, they saw ordination as a way of recognizing God's calling on my life and a way of sending me off to seminary with a purpose. I think they also realized that there was a good chance that I wouldn't be returning to an established church. And so it was a way, it was a way for them to, to back me and, and almost commission me in that endeavor. And for that, I am forever grateful to them. While at seminary, I stayed connected to a group of friends from this Baptist church in Miami. Uh, we sensed that we were going to do life and ministry together in the future, uh, even though we didn't know what all that entailed. We weren't, we weren't yet using the language of church planning. We just knew that we wanted to, to run together in the future. And so every, uh, every six months or so, we would meet up for a retreat. Uh, this is while I was at seminary, during my three years. Every six months or so, we would meet up for a retreat, and we would share meals together, and we would catch up, and we'd tell stories, and we'd laugh, and we would pray and worship and press into God together. And one of the things we would do on these retreats is try to discern about the future as a community. Now, none of us had much experience with community discernment. We had been a part of churches where uh, the decisions were made generally by one or two charismatic leaders or by congregational vote, but we were captivated by the idea 
that the church is to be neither autocratic, the rule of one person, nor democratic, the rule of the people, but pneumocratic, the rule of the Spirit. We said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to guide the people of God. And so we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul lays down instructions for holding a meeting in the power of the Holy Spirit. We looked at Acts 15, where this actually gets acted out with the Council of Jerusalem, where you see this prayerful dialogue and discernment until they uh, reach a decision and are able to say, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. And so we practiced this early on in these retreats, and it became, it became our ongoing decision-making process even after the church was planted. So it was in my second year at seminary, um, after one of these retreats, that we really began to get a sense that this was going to be a church plant. And it made sense to do it in Miami, since the majority of these friends were still living there, and it was the context that we knew best. So as soon as that retreat ended, the first thing I did was call up the pastor of the church in Miami that I'd worked for. And I told him, here's what we're thinking. We're, we're thinking and praying about church planning. But we will not do it in Miami if you don't want us to. We were giving you full veto rights because we don't want to be a part of anything that is divisive. We had another conversation a few uh, months later. I repeated the same thing to him, to which he said, Keith, stop asking me that. Please do not plant this church anywhere other than Miami. We need more kingdom communities here. Church planning can, can be contentious at times, can it not? Especially if the church planter has been on staff at a neighboring church. And so it was very important to us to have the blessing of this church if we were going to plant in the same area. So I graduate from Princeton in 2010, and I moved back to Miami. I moved in with one of the couples in this group, and we began meeting in their home, uh, began meeting in their home for, for worship. We, we were a church. We didn't yet have a name for our church. To be honest, just full disclosure here, we hadn't read any books on church planning. We hadn't attended any church planting conferences. Uh, we hadn't been a part of any church planting trainings. Now, I am not recommending this. I'm just telling our story. We had done a lot of thinking and reading on the why of, the why of church planting. But we didn't spend much time on the how, and I think a lot of that was because we were reacting to what we perceived as an obsession with technique and models and church growth strategies in the evangelical church. Now, if I had it to do all over again, I would have spent more time on the pragmatic and practical side of church planning. I think it would have saved us some headaches those uh, first few years. For the first 
four months, we met in a living room on Sunday evenings for our worship. We didn't do any advertising. We didn't send out any flyers in the mail. Um, We grew by building relationally and by word of mouth. And because of that, uh, we grew slower. Pretty soon, though, we were having to open up the, uh, these back doors of the living room because we had, we had chairs extending into the backyard, and so we began looking for a public space. And we got connected with a Methodist church near the University of Miami that graciously uh, let us use their chapel on Sunday evenings. And so we met, uh, we met in this chapel for for nearly five years, and then when we decided to move to Sunday mornings for our public worship, uh, we, we began meeting at an Elks Lodge down the street, because we really wanted to stay in the same neighborhood, and that's where the church continues to meet to this day. Uh, our pastoral team, pastoral team was based on a model of shared leadership. This was discussed a little bit um, in the previous talk by, by Kevin, he was asked some questions about APAS. So three pastors, and we tried to divvy up our roles accordingly to, according to uh, the fivefold gifting in Ephesians 4, that Christ has given some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. If Imagine some of you, many of you, are familiar with the APEST, apostles, that's what is kind of coined now, apostles, prophets, evangelists, uh, pastors, there's another P in there already, so they, so they say shepherds, yeah, and then teachers. And a lot of the thinking is that kind of in modernity, there's been a collapse of these two roles together into one single figure the pastor and the teacher into what we call a head pastor. So there's this movement to release the ape. Where's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists? And so among the three of us, uh, Liz up here with the red hat and Matt in the blue shirt, we tried to divvy up um, those five-fold giftings. This was one tool we used. It wasn't the only tool. We also formed our roles around what the community needed and what we were skilled at. And then we had a group of elders. It's bigger now, but this was a few years ago. A group of uh, elders, we call them the guidance team. So that's what they do. They're appointed to guide our community. And they uh, have authority over the pastors. When we planted, we... We weren't a part of any denomination or network. But we really felt convicted by the ecumenical question of how are we connected to the larger body of Christ? And what does this communicate that we're all on our own? So within a year, we had joined Ecclesia, which is a network of uh, missional relational churches. Dr. Guter was actually the one to first introduce us to Ecclesia. 
And our decision to join that network ended up being crucial. I actually don't know if Rhythm would have survived had it not been for Ecclesia. As a young church plant, we needed coaching from others who had done this before. We needed friendships with those who were doing it currently. And we just needed to know that we weren't crazy for doing this. Or if we were crazy, at least we weren't the only ones. And my convictions about the ecumenical question have only grown over the years. I wish we had belonged to a network or a denomination before we had planted. I wish we had. Just like I don't think there should be any Lone Ranger Christians, I don't think there should be any Lone Ranger churches. Every church needs accountability and support Every church planter needs to submit to authority and needs encouragement. So here's where I'm going to do a bit more of the theological footnotes. Are you ready for this? Roll up the sleeves. All right, you got them rolled up. One way of describing rhythm is sort of like if John Howard Yoder, Dallas Willard, and Leslie Newbegin had a baby. Now, uh, I know that sounds odd for a number of reasons, because what it essentially equates to is three men and a baby. <laughs> and yes, I did design this image just for this talk. Well done. But, <laughs> but we, what we got from Yoder is that our first form of witness is our life together. From Willard, we got the conviction that the church exists to produce people who resemble Jesus in lifestyle, beliefs, value, and love. And from Newbegin, we got the question, what does it look like to have a genuine missionary encounter with the culture in which we find ourselves in? So, th this conferences formed around the theological why of church planning and church revitalization. And the best way I know to go about answering that is to tell you the, the three main reasons that we planted rhythm, which is sort of what you did at, at the end, Darius, that, that I appreciated. That's the best way I know to go about answering this. And as I do share these three reasons, I think that you'll see they more or less align with the lessons that we took from these three wise men. So I'll, I'll list these out. The first is, and I'm, a, I'm such a visual learner, so, and it's also late afternoon, so I'm going to write these out for us. We planted rhythm first and foremost because we wanted to live deeply together, and share a common life of worship and mission. The more we read the New Testament, the more we were convinced that close-knit community is required in order to live out the faith. 
So the early church met at times in large groups in the temple, but Christianity was primarily lived out in these small clusters, these groups of 10, 20, 30 people. Now, we can talk about whether the book of Acts should be read as normative for ongoing Christian experience. I'd be happy to talk about that if we want to bring that back up. But let me just say this. If you read the other New Testament books, you will find all of these one another's. Encourage one another. Submit to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Speak truth to one another. Admonish one another. There's over 40 of these one another's in the New Testament, and the overwhelming majority of them only make sense in the context of close-knit community. These one another's aren't the kind of things that you can carry out by meeting in a large building once a week with people you hardly know. So regardless of how we want to interpret the book of Acts, whether it is prescriptive or merely historically descriptive, the other New Testament writers presuppose that Christians are living out the faith in small pockets of intimate fellowship. So from the beginning, we said we want our life together to be fundamental. And then we want the corporate expression of our church to flow out of that. In other words, we want Sunday worship to be the wrap-up of the week rather than the main focus. And this is why we chose the name Rhythm. Uh, It's not because we were trying to be cool and hip. In fact, I almost nixed it at the beginning because it sounded trendy. And we've got enough churches with trendy names. The reason we stuck with rhythm, the reason we went with it, is because no other single word best describes who we're trying to be. A group of people following Jesus and living in the rhythm of God's kingdom, the rhythm of worship and mission, just like the human body lives by the back and forth movement of inhaling and exhaling, so the body of Christ lives by the back and forth movement of worship and mission. We said we want to we form our life together around that rhythm. Something we did early on to foster this life together was to create a rule of life for our community. This is a set of practices, corporate practices, individual practices, that come from four vows, commitments. A commitment to worship, to mission, mission, to uh, submitting to Jesus, to his lordship over our lives, and then to community. And then from those main vows, we came up, and very contextual here, we, we took a long uh, period of discernment to do this, What are some practices in this time and place that we can do to live out these these commitments to these core values, which include daily, some of them, daily prayer and daily scripture reading, a commitment to bless those in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, 
a commitment to uh, submit to Jesus in the core areas of practical living, money, sexuality, power. A commitment to reconcile with others in the community in a way that honors God and one another. Reconciliation is sort of the spare tire in the car, right? We are broken people, and broken people have sharp edges. Hang out long enough with us and you'll get cut. But we want to teach you how to reconcile. Yoder once wrote that to be human is to be in conflict. The difference for the Christian is how he or she resolves the conflict. And so this this rule of life, and this is just a condensed version of it, we've written it out in detail and we invite people to make an annual commitment to it. This was our attempt to restore the integrity of church membership. That it actually means something to belong to a local church. I would contend this is even more important considering our cultural situation. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the gospel is a stumbling block to the religious and it's foolishness to the cultured. That's because in a culture where the Christian worldview cannot be assumed, that was Paul's context, it's increasingly our context, in a culture like that, the message that God is redeeming the world through a crucified Messiah just sounds crazy. It will make no sense. So the gospel will remain unintelligible unless there is a community that embodies it. Unless, unless there is a community. See, if, if people see a community that is living out that same cross-like, Calvary-looking love, a community that shares its resources so that all are provided for, a community that is made up of people from really different backgrounds, ethnic and social and economic backgrounds, a community that forgives its enemies and renounces violence, a community that shows compassion to those on the margins, a community that has its own strong convictions but doesn't look down on those outside of its community who don't have those same beliefs and this community does all of this because they believe that Jesus is Lord. When people see that, they'll say, well, maybe there is something to this message of Jesus. Our first form of witness is our life together. And in our post-modern, post-Christian, post-everything context, talk is cheap. People have to see this good news embodied if they're to believe. So let me tell you about Devin. Devin is on the, the right here. She was a student at the University of Miami. And she was on the rowing team. And one of our community groups that met every week uh, had a bunch of young folks in it. And, and so, ever so often, they'd throw a house party. And they'd invite new people to come and mix it up with the community. And one, one time, uh, somebody brought along Devin. And I met her there and 
we were talking. Uh, she said that she's a student. And I said, well, how are your classes going this semester? And she said, oh, they're going okay. And then she said, but I have this one class. Um, it's in the religion department. Uh, I took it because I needed an elective. But I don't know why I'm in this class. I honestly don't know how it's on the Bible. And I honestly don't know how anyone can believe this stuff. And the class is so boring because that book is so boring. And she's going on and on and on. She has no idea that I'm the pastor of this community and that I study and teach Bible for a living. Well, Devin had a great time that evening. She decided to come back next week to this community group and to keep coming back. And this is a group that would meet weekly to encourage one another in the way of Jesus. So a little bit of time goes by. And then she shows up on Sunday to our public worship. And then, well, about a year goes by and she shares with me. I actually wrote this down. Keith, I don't know if I believe in Jesus yet. But I love this community, and I want, I want what you guys have. A year later, Devin was going through our Divine Dance uh, program. It's a three-month mentorship program for those who are being baptized. And as one of the activities that they do together, we share a big meal. And we go around, and we each tell our story. And when it gets to Devin, she shares with us, I not only believe that Jesus is Lord, but he's my hero. Witness. Let me say it like this. How about this? Community makes witness possible in a skeptical post-Christian culture. Community is what makes witness possible in this sort of context. Okay, so the second reason that we planted rhythm is what I want to call holy agitation. We were agitated. We were discontent, disturbed by the lack of discipleship taking place in the church. Uh, Dallas Willard said there are two questions that every church needs to be able to answer. Number one, what's your plan for making disciples? And number two, how's that going? But we felt that for most churches, those two questions weren't even on the radar. Non-discipleship continues to be the elephant in the church that no one wants to talk about. One of the churches that I previously worked at, it was a large, uh, seeker-sensitive church. And after worship one Sunday, I met a guy, and we started talking a bit. It was very apparent uh, as we were chatting that he was a baby Christian, that he had recently become a a Christian. He was young in his faith. And as we're talking, I'm getting excited because I absolutely love seeing people meet Jesus. And, I mean, I'm... I'm a bit like a dating service. I love people and I love Jesus and I think the two should meet. And I absolutely love seeing people meet Jesus and begin this process 
of, of transformation from the inside out. It means that, that human change is possible. Amen? And, and so as we're talking, I'm starting to get excited. And, uh, and I'm, I say, how, how did you hear about the church? Or, or who invited you? Or how did you get here? Because I'm thinking he's probably been coming for a month, maybe two months uh, max. And he says, huh? I've been a part of this church for nine years. And I remember asking myself, what are we doing here? What's the goal of all this? All this activity? All of this planning? All of this energy? What's the goal? Of it? Is it just to get a bunch of people here? Is there, no, is there no greater purpose? It was like sandpaper on my soul. Many churches really, it, it, they appear to only care about the three B's, right? The buildings, the budgets, and the butts in the seat. Or for my British friends, the three P's of people, pews, and pounds. One of the reasons we planted Rhythm is because we were agitated that there are churches full of undiscipled disciples. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to be careful because agitation can easily lead to arrogance. Uh, you know, no one else is doing it right, so we're going to do it. Uh, we tried to go about this in a really humble way because I'm convinced there's no place for arrogance in the kingdom. But let's not throw the banana out with the skin. I do believe there is a place for holy agitation in the Christian faith. I believe that God has used it in the past, that he's continuing to use it to renew his church and to start new movements. I mean, my goodness, the early monasticism and the Franciscans and the Quakers and the Methodists, all these were birthed out of holy agitation. And so from the time we planted Rhythm, we were constantly wrestling with Willard's two questions. What is our plan for making disciples, and how is that going? And a number of things came out of that. I'll just give you a couple of examples. We started something called Supper Clubs. These were groups of 10 to 12 folks who commit to meet for a season every other week around a dinner table as apprentices of Jesus. The express goal of becoming more like our mentor and master Jesus. And these are closed groups with a high commitment. And each time they share a meal, they look at a different aspect of the Christian faith as a lived reality. How, how do we flesh this out? How do we faithfully follow Jesus in this time and place? And, and we would use our rule of life as, as a big part of that curriculum. We used it as a, as a curriculum for Christ-likeness, sort of as a community guide for discipleship. And we give homework each week. Homework. Go out. Try this. And then we make people journal, reflect. What was it like? Come back. Because when we gather next time for a meal, we're going to go around and we're each going to share. What was your experience with this? Supper clubs are for ongoing spiritual and character formation. But we also started something for those brand new to the faith. I, I mentioned the divine dance uh, a minute ago when I was talking about Devin. This is 
a three-month mentorship program for folks who are going to be baptized. We call it the divine dance because we think that the Christian life is not so much about signing on to a list of doctrines and beliefs. It's much more akin to getting swept into a divine dance with the living triune God. Involves all of life. And the best way to learn to dance is to come hang out with me. But if you can't do that, the best way to learn to dance is not to go into a room and just by yourself read a bunch of books. It's to get on the dance floor with some really good dancers to learn from the experience of that. Discipleship is holy eavesdropping. And so we would pair each of the dancers with a dance instructor, a normal man or woman in the congregation who has experience in the Christian life. And then we would give them a, land, a, a list of dance exercises. Come on, man. We just absolutely juice that dance metaphor. <laughs> Every little ounce we could. <clears throat> These were learning activities. These dance exercises. Uh, that they would do over this three-month period. For example, like uh, read on your own the Gospel of Mark and take notes. What inspires you? What confuses you? Then meet up every other week to discuss what you're learning. Or go on a prayer walk through your neighborhood with your mentor. Or get a copy of the church's budget and, and look over it and discuss why does Jesus care what we do with our money? Or, uh, or participate, volunteer with your mentor in one of the ministries uh, that our community has going on. In a way, in a way, we made it hard to get baptized. We were unapologetic about it. We'd say, look, we know this is really intense. We know that we're asking a lot of you. This is sort of like a boot camp for the kingdom of God. We also know that down the street here at the University of Miami, they got, they got these things called fraternities. And if you're going to be in a frat, you have to do this. You have to do this process of rushing. And guys are willing to do that and actually pay money for it. And it's really, really intense. And the reason that they're willing to do it is because they know that at the end, they're going to get these brothers for life. How much more so should we take seriously the rite of passage known as baptism? Because you're not just getting brothers and sisters for life. You're getting them for all of eternity. Sorry, I forgot I'm at Princeton. Got to tone it down a little bit. Tone it down. <laughs> Amen. We originally designed this for, for folks getting baptized. But after the first time we did it, there was such a desire from others in the community who said, hey, I've been baptized in the past, but I've never been mentored in, in that sort of intentional way. So we ended up opening it up for not just those getting baptized, but anyone who wanted to be discipled in a formal way. And, and we had planned on only doing it once a year. We had to start offering it every fall and spring because of the amount of people that wanted to do it. People are hungry. Give them something to eat. And maybe we can come back, circle back around, maybe in the Q&A, we can talk about Simon Chan in his book, Spiritual Theology, talks about rem he gives us remnant theology of investing in the remnant, pouring into the... I know when you were sharing, Pam, you talked about 
in the past how it's been those who are resistant that have drained so much energy. And Simon Chan says, focus on the remnant. Those who are hungry, that want to grow. And it's so, it, 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 it's so attractive. It's so infectious, contagious to the rest of the body as well. Okay, so the third and final reason we planted rhythm is because we wanted to have a genuine missionary encounter with the culture of Miami. We felt called to experiment, to find creative ways to crack the pavement and, and break new ground for the kingdom. And it would have been hard to, to do that within an established church. Sometimes new wine needs new wineskins. And, and Kevin actually touched on this. Uh, I agree with him. I think that church plants are, are like the research and development branch of the kingdom of God. They're, they're smaller and more nimble and can take more risks. And we wanted to experiment and try things out. Our laboratory for this was the city of Miami. Now, I actually, I absolutely love Miami. I think it's, uh, it's full of energy. It's, it's, it's got this life to it. It's creative. It's also one of the most diverse cities in our country. However, Miami is also known as the city of martinis, bikinis, and Lamborghinis. It's a fast place with lots of temptations. And so, how do you go about having a genuine missionary encounter with a city like that? This is where Newbegin was so helpful. He spent a lot of time reflecting on this. And he said that, that a genuine missionary encounter it, it entails that you, that you intentionally engage the culture. So you've got to get out of your comfort zone. But you can't become assimilated to it. So if you're not intentionally engaging it, then you're just going to end up living in your own little Christian ghetto. But if you end up becoming assimilated to it, then you're not going to have any real kingdom impact on the culture. Along these lines, uh, the, the African theologian Kwame Bediako once said that Christianity is the most translatable religion in the world because it is able to put on and wear the clothes of any culture. And when the gospel moves into a culture, it will embrace certain aspects of that culture that are good, that are generative, but it will simultaneously other aspects of that culture because no culture is weighty enough to bear the whole gospel. So both of those aspects take place in a genuine missionary encounter. The affirming aspect as well as the rejecting, but I would contend that we should always begin by looking for what we can affirm. I remember having a conversation early on with another pastor in Miami. And we were talking, and he was just going on and on about how messed up Miami is. And so I asked him, so what do you love about this city? What do you love about lo living in Miami? 
And he sat there and he just thought. It was like silence. Just thought, thought. Then he goes, well, I love that there's so much ministry to do here because it's such a dark city. (laughs) No! No, that doesn't count. (laughs) Uh, Try again, homeboy. See, of course, there are some things in Miami that God wants to change, but I don't think that's where we start. We start by proclaiming that God loves this city. We start by looking for the aspects of the culture that reflect God's character. What revs God's heart? What here needs to be celebrated? So we did a Love God, Love Miami sticker campaign. This is one of the ways we were teaching our people to not just live in the city, but to love the city, to look for what can be celebrated. We had hundreds, it might have been into the thousands, of these stickers printed, and we gave them out to sort of sticker bomb the city. Each year, we do a sermon series on Miami. The sermon might be about the history, some, some part of the history of the city. It might be, the sermon might be one part sociology, one part theology. I remember one year, we just asked the question, if Jesus, if Jesus was teaching on a hillside in our city, what would he say? Or if Paul was writing a letter to our city, what would he say? We were trying not to just exegete Scripture, but to exegete the neighborhood. Not just listen to the Spirit, but also listen to the city. To put our ear to it. To listen for the deeper needs. Sort of like the the stethoscope. right? You know the guy who invented the stethoscope? He said, which continues to be used today, he said, listen to your patients. They'll tell you the answer. And so we were trying to listen to our city and and ask, what is good news in Miami? I'll give you an example. Miami is a a city that loves to party, that loves to live it up. Now, obviously, not all of the partying that goes on there is good and generative. But there's something wonderful about the desire for joy, the desire to feel alive, to, to experience something that transcends ordinary life. And so we embrace this part of the culture. We were constantly throwing dance parties. We were constantly having celebrations in the community. I got into DJing myself. I actually went to school for it in Miami, Scratch Academy. I'm not making this up. To Miami, New York, and LA. My tagline was Pastor by Day, DJ by Night. DJ Theophilus. I got into DJing, and I'm talking about like old school vinyl and the turntables and all that. I got into DJing, number one, because I love good music, but number two, because there was little, if any, Christian witness in the DJ scene in Miami. And the DJ scene in Miami is huge. Every Easter, we would have uh, a big worship, and then we'd have a big feast after that. We'd pull out all the stops. And then we'd throw a huge dance party. And we would tell people, look, the most theologically appropriate response to the empty tomb is to dance. (laughs) 
I can't tell you the amount of conversations I had with people. I said, wait, you're, you're a pastor and a DJ. Wait, your church throws dance parties. And we'd say, yeah, we, we want to live it up. This is actually why we follow Jesus. We believe that Jesus shows us the deepest and rawest way to live. So we also started community groups. We'd start these community groups with a missional edge. We'd look for a niche in the culture that we could build around that would allow for connection and community with those outside of the faith. Uh, One of the groups we started is called Dude Storm, and it's probably the coolest name ever. The, uh, the Dude Storm, um, this is a couple of guys that I started meeting with on Wednesday nights for a glass of whiskey and a cigar and to talk about our lives. And it was just a couple of guys, but then other fellows started hearing about it and asking if they could join us, and it started growing. We had nights where there were almost 20 of us out on my back porch, and we had we eventually had these rituals that started to develop. We would grab a whiskey and a cigar, and we'd go and sit around a fire pit. The, the fire wasn't always this big. This is when we were bringing uh, our Christmas trees and burning them. We, we'd sit around the fire pit, and then uh, and then we'd read the rules of Dude Storm. Again, these just kind of emerged over time. The first rule is there is no dude storm. No, I'm kidding. The first rule. The first rule is no perfect people allowed. And then we go through them. One of them was what's said at the dude storm stays within the storm. And then we just sort of open up the floor, leave it open. And guys would start sharing. We'd, we'd share our hopes and our fears It was a place where guys would confess, where they would ask for advice, counsel on a big decision that was coming up. This became such a sacred space. It became a space where we get soul naked. That's my term for where we drop the fakes and fronts and just get real with one another. We also had guys come to this that would have never stepped foot in a church guy across the street from me. I invited, he had been to Catholic Mass a few times as a boy, but he hadn't been in a church in over 30 years. And we had a dude storm smoker. Every few months we'd smoke meats and have a box of cigars and, and we'd invite new guys to come. And he came and that night, he didn't say much. He mainly just observed. Then he came the next week and he opened up a little bit. Then he started coming, and he'd be the first one every week and the last one to leave. Eight months later, he shows up on a Sunday, and then eventually he finds his way into a supper club, comes back. So with the dude storm, well, we just tried it as an experiment, and within a few years we had three dude storms around the city with about 15 guys in each group. I'll give you one more example, uh, then I'll wrap it up. There was a guy in our congregation who had a, a food truck, and on Tuesday nights he would go downtown and, and uh, feed a couple hundred uh, homeless folks in the city. And a group of us from the church started riding with him, and 
And it was about four or five stops, but there was this one stop in particular, 14th Street, right in the heart of the city. We just sensed that God was up to something there, and we tried to pay attention. There's about 40 or 50 guys that would come every week. They'd be waiting there, and we just had this connection with them. And so we started a, a community group right there, right on, right on the street, on the corner, a ministry of presence. And so we would actually arrive before the food truck, and we'd just spend time chatting with folks and getting to know their stories. The food truck would roll up, and we wouldn't just help serve our friends. We would eat with them. We'd sit down on the curb and break bread together. And then after the truck left, we'd hang around for another half hour or so and chat with anybody lingering. And then we would invite anybody that wanted to join us to walk down to the McDonald's down the street. We had a handful of our homeless friends that would join us. We'd sit around a table together as equals, drink bad coffee, and share our joys and sorrows with one another. The kingdom of God was breaking in right there on 14th Street and right in that McDonald's. Beautiful friendships grew out of this. Uh, Tony was it's one of those friendships. He's in his 50s. He was finishing a degree at his undergrad degree at a community college in Miami while living on the streets. And I still remember when we rolled up and he just was, he couldn't wait to show us that he had gotten an A on his statistics exam. And when he graduated, when he graduated, we threw a huge party. And another guy in the church that owns a small business actually ended up hiring him. Well, that's a bit about a church named Rhythm. I've tried to go about answering this question of why church plant by telling our story with some of those theological footnotes. And I want to throw this in, one final word. This is to both church planters and established church leaders. I've mainly been talking about church planting. But my wife and I were in Argentina this past winter, and I fell in love with this building in Buenos Aires. Took a ton of pictures of it. It was originally designed in 1903 with the Art Nouveau style, which in French means new style. This was the cutting-edge architecture of its day. But fast forward to the 1980s, and architecture style had changed quite a bit. And this debate arose over what to do with this building. Some said, it's outdated, it's old-fashioned, let's, let's uh, demolish it, let's build something new. Another group said, oh, hold on, hold on. No, 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 this is, this is a historic site. Don't you dare touch this. Let's preserve the building. Let's use our resources to simply uh, touch it up where it needs be. It was finally decided that part of the building would be preserved in its Art Nouveau style. The other part would be reconstructed, renovated in a new modernist style. The result is that they are distinct, but not separate. Distinct, but not separate. And, you know, this new, the new building, I mean, it's bold, it's creative, it's, it's this modernist style, and yet it does not overwhelm the, the old part, the old side of the building. In fact, the old building is reflected 
it's reflected in the panels of the new one, which actually, which actually gives the old building a persistent, enduring presence. I would like to suggest this as a visual metaphor for the church on mission today. New church plants and old, older established churches are distinct, but they're not separate. They're both participating in the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And here's what this means. It means new church plants need to be humble and respect their elders. They need to recognize the good that established churches have done and are doing and to learn from their wisdom. Furthermore, church planters need to have the integrity to not poach other Christians from churches in the area and simply reconfigure or recycle the body of Christ in any given area. The church, the new church, needs to be planted as a gift to the entire church in the area. And on the flip side, established churches need to recognize these new church plants as legitimately the church. Even though they're outside the old guard, they might look and operate very differently. It's like when a grown-up says, man, I, I don't like kids. I can't stand being around them. Guess what? You once were a kid. Every church, every established church was once a church plant. And so they need to be, new church plants need to be viewed not as a threat. You were talking about this, Pam. But as younger members of the family, they need to be given a place at the table. And that's why I think maybe the most important spiritual discipline for pastors of established churches and church planters is to pray for the success of neighboring churches. Because it undercuts ecclesial competition and does away with a mindset that is territorial and turf conscious. So I'll end where I began with some pirate island ecclesiology. John Auer Yoder writes, This is the original revolution. Jesus created around himself a distinct community with its own deviant set of values and its coherent way of incarnating them. Dallas Willard wrote, In sending out his disciples, Jesus set in motion a perpetual world revolution, one that is still in process and will continue until God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And Leslie Newbegin said, If I understand the teaching of the New Testament on this matter, I understand the role of the Christian as that of being neither a conservative nor an anarchist, but a subversive agent. And we don't spend enough of our energies training undercover agents. Why church plant? Why revitalize established churches? Because we need more outposts for the kingdom of God, more pirate islands that will spread the holy mischief, manifest the beauty of the kingdom, and point to a different reality. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for hanging with me this late afternoon. <laughs>